Well, welcome everybody back to another fun edition of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. I love seeing you guys all listening to the podcast. I love seeing the ratings. I appreciate all of you. Today, oh man, I got a fun one. This guy, we just we just had the best fucking time in Edinburgh recently, and I think we're we're bonded now for life. He is the man. I, oh, he's he knows how to have a good time. He's got great fucking whiskey. Got a great attitude, and we just have a great time. Well, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce Daryl Aden to the show. Da- Daz, how are you, my friend? Uh, dude, I was just thinking, I was like, I wonder if I'm allowed to swear on the show or not, but you've, uh, you've confirmed that within 10 seconds, which is not a massive surprise, to be honest, Gallag, but <laughs> to hear from you. Daz, you want to tell people just a quick second who you are and what you do other than being a fucking legend? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, that's, uh, that's quite a title. Um, and I, it's not on my business card, sadly, but maybe maybe one day, maybe one day. Um, yeah, look, look I've, um, I've had the, the pleasure of working in the whiskey industry for a very long time, and since I was 22, actually, and I'm 39 now, so um, life uh, life has been kind in that respect. And I look after our private clients, uh, mainly here at Bowmore, uh, Gavin. So, you know, we've got access to some lovely old whiskey, and we get to spend time with, you know, collectors and drinkers, which is brilliant. Oh, man. I mean, seriously, you and me had a lot of fun together. See, what's your, like, for you, you know, you got in the business when you were 22, you're now 39. What was your, like, you know, growing up, you know, in the land of Scotch whiskey, what was your, what did your first whiskey experiences look like? Back in the you day? Know, my, my dad was, uh, yeah, 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 my, my dad was a cook on the submarines. So he was, he was like a really shy Steven Seagal, right? And oh. what he used to do <laughs> is, is he, when he came back, when he came back from sea, he, he used to drink. Uh, you know, mainly gin actually, but he would always have whiskey in the house, and I, I actually always liked the smell of it. And then when um, my uncle, my dad's brother, had a restaurant, I used to go and work in his restaurant a lot of the time. And you know, we would go through there again. I would get more exposed to it and things like that. So you know, eventually I just kind of um, drifted into it. It's something that we were always aware of, of course, growing up in Scotland. You know, and what and what, the, what did the whiskeys uh, look like? What what were the whiskeys back in the day? What, what oh, like? famous grouse. Famous, famous grouse mainly because it's the number one blend in the UK um, and it kind of Bell's do you know actually Bell's, Bell's might have been just ahead of famous grouse in the late 80s early 90s when I, when I was growing up and the other one the other one that nobody really hears about uh, because of where I grew up in Fife uh, there's a big distillery called Cameron Brig and Cameron Brig is a grain distillery uh, that's been my first whiskey memory I had a scarlet fever as an 8 year old boy and there was a special hospital, an infectious unit hospital at the back there of the facility that I got sent to for a week. And I remember looking out the window and seeing the lights twinkling away and, and said to my mum, probably one of my earliest memories, I said to my mum, mum, is that a spaceship? And she said, no, from that facility. And that was the Cameron Brick facility. So actually, Cameron Brick, where I grew up, was really prominent. You would see it in all the miners' clubs, because we're a mining area, at all the working men's clubs and the ex-servicemen's clubs. Nowadays, you don't see it so much. But, you know, the Cameron Brig, famous grouse and bells, those were the whiskeys you usually see. Didn't see a lot of malt whiskey back then, to be honest. Well, it's crazy because I don't hear a lot of people say bells, but, like, for me growing up in Cape Town, like, bells was a big thing. You know, it was bells and mm. J&B and shivers. You know, with bells, with yeah. bells really fucking, they, they, I mean, they had a big footprint in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, and, and they, they did also in the east coast of Scotland. But it's just, uh, you know, the funny time, because... Bells was being pushed by Diageo. They had, you know, they'd been bought with Guinness uh, and gone into that kind of United Distillers 
sort of conglomerate. Uh, Johnny Walker left Scotland at that time and went abroad, uh, and, and Bells and Grouse stayed kind of fighting it out here in the UK for that kind of homeland turf. So and there was others, obviously. There was, you know, Tours and, and Spike McKay's, but they were all quite regional. You know, they tended to be popular where they were produced in bottles and things like that. Yeah. But like, but like whiskey, what, like if I look at the whiskey in those times, like whiskey was like you said, it was like a family thing. You saw somebody else drink it. You drank whiskey. It wasn't like you drank it. Like, obviously not like we do right now with the nosing it and the fucking chewing it and the going through the whole thing. It was just like, no, hey, you drink whiskey. You drink whiskey. That's it. You drink. It's alcohol. You drink. Yeah. I think there was two sides to it, wasn't there? There was like one side, which is, as you say, very sociable. Yeah. And something that, you know, you would always be offered uh, when you went to somebody's house, if they were like a whiskey drinker or a brandy drinker, you'd usually get offered a glass. There's also the reality, which if you think about these areas, Gavin, like, these were like well-to areas, pretty poor areas, pretty normal working class kind of areas. A lot of it was functional. The price 100%. went up a couple of pennies. They would, they, would, they would go away and go elsewhere and find, you know, the most efficient way of enjoying those whiskeys. So it was then, yeah, a lot of guys, a lot of older guys I found, drinking on their own um, and we have a ritual you know that half and half which is a small beer and a wee whiskey on the side we partook in that uh, ourselves you know and that that's that's a really cool yeah. way of enjoying whiskey where you've got a, a, a usually a dark beer like a, a bellhaven best or a bitter type beer um, and a wee whiskey next to it and that's that's the that, that's kind of what i used to see growing up a lot but that was almost like you know <laughs> it's a stupid word but like family diet you just do that you yeah. Do it. yeah, you just do it. You don't even ask why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you don't really know. You don't really know what it's all about. You just kind of find yourself doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny one. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's I, weird. I mean, I'm it's nice. a massive part of our culture. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I, I think South Africa did a really good job of that too because it really was part of the culture. Everywhere you went, it was like, can I get your whiskey? And of course, like, I don't know you, but I mean, back then it was on the rocks, on the rocks, on the rocks. Sometimes a splash of soda. <laughs> like that was, yeah, that was in South just, Africa. In, in yeah. South Africa, yeah, not here, not here. Yeah. I, I remember my dad saying to me, so when I started to do, uh, so I was working in bars and, and I was starting to do cocktail competitions. That's really how I got into the whiskey industry. And I did this competition for, for Johnny Walker. And I remember making the cocktail and actually taking it back to my dad. And he kind of looked at me like, well, what are you doing? You know, with mixing all this stuff up. And I was like, no, I'm, I've got this competition. Here's the brief and here's the drink I've made for it. I think it's quite good. And he was like looking at me just saying, you know, the only thing you should put in a whiskey son is another whiskey, you know? And it was, uh, that, that was the kind of attitude here in Scotland uh, back, back at that time. But you know, my, my father-in-law, my father-in-law is from South Africa. He grew up yeah. in Durban. He actually came to the UK in the 1960s, but his background, Indian family uh, out there in Peter Maritzburg, they, they drank a lot of whiskey and they did drink it yeah. south and they did drink it like soda highball and all that kind of stuff. So... I guess it just depends on where you were in the world. How yeah, you see yeah. Because whiskey, I see that in Asia a lot as well. You know, a nice block of ice on a few kids. Brilliant. Great way to... Well, I mean, now, I mean, we, we could do a whole show on fucking blocks of ice. It's like a full-time business now. Yeah. I go everywhere like, what kind of kid? Yeah, yeah. You want know, the press and the sphere. So, so okay. So, you grow up, you know, you see it. Obviously, whiskey is part of your culture. You see it. You see it. Mm. When was the first time you drank a whiskey and went, oh, wow. That's different. Mm-hmm. Once I was on a date, actually, um, in Edinburgh. I'd come to Edinburgh from Fife. I wasn't long here. I met a girl at the trade station, very romantically, walked her down to the grass market, 
And I, I tried to look quite cool and sophisticated. And I actually saw a bottle at Highland Park and I ordered a bowl of nachos. I ordered her a vodka and cranberry and I ordered myself a Highland Park 12 year old. And uh, I actually really liked it. Uh, the date was terrible. She was not very friendly. The nachos and the whiskey were, were, were great. So I kind of, I kind of thought, wow, that, that is actually going down a lot better uh, than I thought it would. And then um, years later, obviously, I, went and I was working at bars at that point. It kind of piqued my interest. So I wonder what, you know, I wonder what the other ones are like. I wonder what a Glen Morningview is like. I wonder what a Glen Livet's like. I started to kind of ask questions. And, and that's probably where I kind of started to realise, you know, there's, there's actually a, like a whole world out here. I'm a young Scottish guy. Is this the ticket, you know, for me to maybe get out out of, out of the world and, and see what else is going on? And I, and I genuinely did think that when I kind of first tasted that. For you, like you look now, I mean, okay, let's, okay. So now you get into the business when you're 22. What was, what was your gig yeah. like back then? Ah, I was chilled, man. It was chilled. Yeah, I was running around making cocktails for Diageo and uh, getting, maybe getting bartenders and stuff to come up with some recipes with, with not just whiskey, it was rum and tequila and stuff like that, but. Did a lot of work on the classic malts back then, you know, your Lagavulins, your Robins, Kawilas and things like that. And then, um, oh, there's tons of fun, man. Tons of fun. I mean, there's so many good stories from those eras. Which I, which I, which I feel like those, hmm. those three, you know, like they're starting to fe- find a little bit of a rebirth, like bringing them back to, I mean, right now, obviously malts are front and center. You know, you can't, he mm. can't get away and there's, there's millions of different ones, but there's a ton of great history. In the whiskeys, tons, man. Ah, oh, tons, and they've got like, those distilleries and that classic malt selection, and then you've got Singleton, which came out around that kind of time as well, uh, in, a, in a rebranded way, you know, with the blue bottle and things like that. There was there was so much going on. But you, you know, the thing was, man. See, at this time, it's actually quite crazy because this is two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Most places didn't want malt whiskeys. You know, we were still going to old hotels in the region. You know, out in the the island, even the islands, where we're still going to golf clubs, and they were really the only ones taking it. It took a few years for us to crack, you know, the city center bars and the really nice hotel bars and stuff. Because they don't. And what? And what do you think bar. was what was the, what was the turn that you think made that crack? Because I mean, when I used to run restaurants and nightclubs, dude, there was hardly any malts. There was a couple of blends yeah, and totally. you push tequila, tequila, vodka, gin, anything that could get you fucking hammered really quickly is what you were pushing. Nothing that took forever to drink, like a like a malt. Nothing. You didn't want that. You don't. You don't want a guy sitting at your bar for twenty five minutes staring at you. You wanted to drink it and get yeah. order the next one. So what do you, what do you think was yeah. the catalyst that kind of like crafted? Because you were right in the thick of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we arrived in the thick of it. There was, I think, there was a lot of things going on. To be honest, I think there was um, there was probably like a shift in, in flavor and, and appreciation for flavor. You know, people started to appreciate things a little bit more. That was probably helped by things like, you know, books coming out, writing about a subject in a, in, a, in a fascinating way, people like Michael Jackson. And then obviously later on, you had people like Charlie McLean and Dave Rubin, stuff like that, you know, commentating on the industry. There was the birth of events. I think the first whiskey show was 98, I think. It was two that year. There was one in New York and there was one in Frankfurt. So I think in the late 90s and early 1000s, you started to see activity, uh, commentary, gatherings, you know, people starting to get together to share their experiences. I don't think there was one thing, but I, th- I think there was like a number of things that kind of went whiskey's way, things walk whiskey's way, um, that that actually helped snowball the, the sort of the interest quite quickly thereafter. Um, and, and that obviously then percolated into the types of venues and stuff that would stock it. And if they're there, people try them, right? Because you're not, you're not going to spend 
40 pounds on something you don't like in a shop, but you would spend three or four pounds on a dram and go, that one was great, or I didn't like that one, I'll try another one the next time, you know? Well, I mean, you know, th- those are two really good points. Because one thing I noticed when I was hanging out with you was you can find whiskeys for six, seven, eight pounds. And of course, you can find them mm. for 1,500, 2,000 pounds. But there's like a huge spectrum. Over here, like we don't have, you know, in America, there's like, y- y- it's hard to find anything below like 15 bucks. That's actually yeah. decent. Yeah. You've got such a big yeah. variety. I mean, even that place that you and I went to, you know, after the the Sotheby's event, right around the corner from my yeah. hotel. I don't know why. I mean, they had yeah. a ton of whiskey on there at at all different prices. You know, like it, that's a great pub. Very... It's a great pub. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of the one of the great drinking spots in Edinburgh, right? It's the Bow Bar, yeah. and Bow Bar is is you know down on uh, that Victoria Street here in Edinburgh, and it's a great place because exactly that you can go there and you can have a lovely dram for three or four pounds. I think we had a look woman uh, in there, very reasonably priced. Um, but then, obviously, you can go up to a, what was that, 27-year-old spring bag that you were drinking. Yeah. But even yeah, that wasn't one crazy those. compared to, like, other places that I had drank at during those days hanging out over there. But it's, like, it's such a beautiful variety. But I also think because it's the motherland, it doesn't require a yeah. lot of explanation. It's almost like Disneyland. You got, like, 100 rides. You're like, well, fuck it, I'll go. You know, over here yeah. in the States, you have some amazing whiskey bars. But, like, you have to be... You have to kind of know what you're doing or find a really good bartender or server that will guide you through it because there's just a ton on there. And, you know, and yeah, it's all over the map as far as pricing, you know, and everything like that. And and it's amazing because it's such a business now, the on-premise yeah. action. You know, they, yeah, they, yeah. the whiskey, great, whiskey book, you know, like they bring a book out now. Here's a whiskey book. <laughs> you know, and you're mm-hmm. like, whoa, hey, that's a lot of whiskey in there. No, 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 I agree. And I think what what's amazing, right? And we go back to this point that I was making earlier, Gabby, when the same thing when you you were running venues and stuff. Is whiskey was not the pride and joy of any venue back then. Mm-hmm. You know, no. um, what's brilliant is in, in 20 years, pretty much, what we've seen is single malt whiskey and becoming the badge of honour of, of a great venue. You have to have a great selection. You don't have to have everything, right? And you don't even have to have hundreds of bottles. But places like the one we were in, what they pride themselves on is the kind of curated selection that they have, and they don't always have the same whiskey. This is them, which is one of the fun parts. Like right? you go back, they don't have that bottle that was went to the last time. It's not there anymore, but they've replaced it with that, you know, another interesting bottling. Maybe it's a proprietary one, maybe it's an indie bottling. Who knows? But that's um, that's one of the charms now. I think is that um, you know the selection and and the reasons why they've selected those is is so important now, and it and it does. It does say a lot about the venue, you know, the whiskeys that are on that shelf. Now, that didn't used to be the case, and that's something I think that, um, you know, single malts uh, should should cherish and also make sure we keep it that way because what we don't want is, um, you know, for all these great single malt whiskey bars and places that pride themselves on that to be replaced by Mezcal or, or rum. Yeah. You know, we need to protect the, the integrity of Scotch. I mean, gin's definitely also taking a huge leap forward. I mean, over here now, you got these places... They call them gin forward. They're gin forward menus. All the cocktails yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of gin, 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 gin. And I'm like, man, okay. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, personally not my jam, but I see the evolution of booze. You know, like when I was coming up, the first evolution was, was schnapps and every flavor of different right. schnapps you could possibly have. And then vodka and every yeah. flavor you could possibly have. 
And then, yeah, and then rum came in and rum had all different, you know, angles to it. And then obviously now with the last couple of years, we've watched tequila and mezcal come in. But I feel like this scotch wave is far from over. And I think that it's, it's actually getting better. I feel like in order to have a good product, you got to step up your game because there's so much competition. Yeah. I mean, for you, yeah. at, at, you know, you work, you work for a legend. You know, how, what's that like working for something, someone, it's like Centauri and Bowmore. What's that like? I mean, you're talking about legendary yeah, whiskey. Yeah, I like it. You know, there's a thing that, in my head, the way I see it, you know, we, I accept that responsibility, you know, and, and I think we, we do have a job to do to protect these brands, to, to mm-hmm. really look after them properly, make sure that, you know, they're there in 100 years or 200 years' time and, you know, still have a, a really good reputation within the industry. I think it's easy to um, to not accept that and, and to run around and do your job and have a good time. But if you, if you don't recognize kind of what you're working for, then you, you'll actually, you'll have a, you know, I think you'll have a fairly limited experience when you meet former distillery managers and former whiskey makers, you know, uh, possibly former owners because these distilleries have changed hands over the years. You do get a sense of, you know, the, the magnitude of what these distilleries represent and they're so important in their communities. They're so important in terms of our heritage, uh, whether it's the island, mainland Scotland, and the way that we're perceived as people. So I think there's like a there's a big part behind these facilities and brands that it, it goes beyond you know, just business. It, it, it's the cultural fabric. It's the it's the relationships with different generations, uh, and we represent that. So we have to be careful how we do it, how we manage it, uh, and obviously how we how we tell that story as we move forward as well, not forgetting where we've come from, I think is really key. I mean, that's the part that I love out. That's what I geek out on, you know, like thinking, sitting with you that night and you taking me through all those incredibly vintage, you know, dinosaur whiskeys. And it's just, it's yeah. different and it's beautiful. But then like on the flip side, like, you know, that 25 year old that you, that I was so gracious that you gifted to me is fucking delicious. And that's newer whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it is exactly that. It's the nineties. It's the nineties whiskey, which is mad because I used to think of the nineties yeah. younger whiskey. You know, and people would say, "Oh, it's a vintage nineties whiskey." They're like, "All right, cool." So it's probably like twelve or thirteen years old. Actually, that's not the case now. Sadly, the nineties whiskey are actually quite old whiskey, which makes me cry inside yeah. a little bit. But going back, right? We'll talk about legacy. Like that's what we represent a lot of the time. And we tasted some brilliant whiskey. We tasted a nineteen sixty-two vintage for more which at, at the still was 101, right? Which was the stack. That's the oldest Bomor yeah. that's ever been released. And it was direct fire stills, floor malted, vague fermentations, juicy, fruity, quite rich, um, delicious, right? And then you go up to the black Bomor, the 64 that we tasted. That was the first one off of the, the steady stills the, uh, that had a lot more influence than Sherry Cash, but was absolutely delicious but still has that tropical fruit, even though the spiciness is coming through from each sherry cask. So I think when you get, when you taste those by side, and you really get a feel for like what was going on all those years ago, it, it brings you a little bit closer uh, to, to, you know, the legacy, to the people that, that made these things. And I think it helps you understand the kind of journey that these facilities have gone on. And then we talked about, we, we also then subsequently tasted an, an 80s bottle of vinegar, which was um, really floral and funky and what, some people might call it soapy. But again, that was representative of that decade. You know, we had mm-hmm. lucky locks. Distilleries were closing all over the place. Most distilleries were shutting at least down to sort of three-day weeks. So there were 
the facilities were working a lot harder in the 1980s. So what we end up with is obviously slightly different flavor profiles to what we had 20 years prior. And it's brilliant to be able to take those differences and to be able to explain to people, this is what was happening in that decade in this part of the world. And that's the impact it's had on the whiskey that you're drinking today. And I love that. So we did a bit of a kind of chronological dip back through those eras uh, in our tasting, uh, which was a lovely end to your trip. And I, I, I was, oh, oh, I, I'm blown, I, I was blown away by that, you know, because it, it's not often we get to sit and actually do that. So it's always, me, it's always fun to get our hands on some of these whiskeys. But look, it's all, even if it's a 12 year old, still part of that story. You know, you've still got that fruity house style, that breadth and depth of flavor, which, you know, as you follow it, it's continued on throughout each expression. Not, doesn't matter how far back you go, there's something there which is identifiable as a, a bit more. Or it could be from another distillery, right? It could be, you know, any of the ones that we tried that night. And I think that's really important. Do you want to tell the listeners just a brief little history on, on Bowmore? Like, you know, what it stands for, what it, you know, just a quick, a quick nothing crazy, you know, because nothing I'm, crazy. Like, yeah, so yeah, jazzed. Yeah. I'm so jazzed on, on Bowmore right now. Like, I'm just like, after I spent time with you, I'm like, I'm on all these auction things, like bidding on some of this vintage Bowmore because it's just different. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucking beautiful there was, whiskey. There was, yeah, there were some really cool releases um, back in the day, you know, that that have really helped, I think, build this reputation. But, you know, we're not, we're not going to go into the, you know, on the 4th of February in 1779, John was there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John was, was, was cleaning the carpet and uh, he, he thought he would open a distillery. No, I, I think, I think like, the, these distilleries on Isla, are really iconic because again that you know when you go to Isla you, you realize that there are you know, distilling is such an important part of the culture on, on that particular island you know back then Isla Island would be the first of those distilleries well certainly the first legal distillery on the island and, and I think that's really important it's a kind of original island distillery uh, uh, you know it's a nice a nice piece of, of the Isla story and Beaumont is always talked about as a bit of a jewel in the crown when it comes to Isla now, as time as time goes by, like all distilleries, you know, there was lots of changes in people and family ownerships and, and things like that. You know, but Bomore was always renowned for its quality. And we talk about this kind of breadth and depth of flavour. And there's there's loads of examples of it, but let's let's skip to the sixties, you know, nineteen sixty four, which is the birth of Black Bomore. It was released in nineteen ninety three. And and I think it's really important because, you know, this was one of the first bottlings that, that was getting very close to that one hundred dollar um, price point. A lot of people didn't think that could work. Now, bearing in mind the first one was a 29 year old, so you know, 29 year old whiskey for 100 pounds sounds like great, a great value today. But back then, it was kind of like there's no way that's ever going to work. And of course, it's gone on to become you know one of the collectible, uh, most collectible single malts there is, and it's a real anchor point for more in terms of its reputation, quality, and flavour. So I think look. Like a lot of distilleries, you know, it's always been part of the fabric of the area and things like that. But the original distillery, I think, on Isla is really important. And then I think creating the real landmark releases has been another point, which all links back to the fact that, you know, it has a lovely house style, what I would call a very expressive house style. Whiskies that are quite orchard fruity and quite honeyed in the early years, mm -hmm. as they get to about 20 years old and beyond. What we start to see is the emergence of tropical fruits, and that really intensifies as you get to sort of 30, 40, 50 years old. And when we were drinking the the whiskey together at Edinburgh, you know, we, we saw that 
I've just I've literally just got back from Singapore yesterday morning, and um, I was in a really amazing cigar bar called La Casa, and in La Casa there's a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Young. Jimmy Jimmy's a, a real legend in Southeast Asia in terms of you know, uh, having access and, and building single malt whiskies um, over the last twenty years, and we opened the 1963 thirty uh, year old or more, and I hadn't tried that vintage before. And we sat, and I just couldn't believe just how fruity, how tropical, you know, that whiskey was. And it, and, I, and I think that's something that, again, just talking about, like, the expressive nature of Bullmore, those lighter fruity notes are not necessarily what you associate with old whiskey. You always think of old whiskey being really spicy, very heavily wooded, uh, really dark in colour. But a lot of these whiskeys from the 60s were put into really good refill, probably second fill casks, and they've just matured fabulously. So... You know, I'm I'm always really excited to try those whiskies, and, and I think that's one of the things as well that, that has kind of stepped Bullmore aside is that that flavour profile highly desirable. People love it, which is why collectors, that's why people on the secondary market, you're going into auctions to buy some of these old whiskies, is for that flavour profile because you can't get that anywhere else. No, it's so unique. I mean, I just I just grabbed your Samaroli, you know, that I'm going to pop open. Like I can't wait because I know he picked some good stuff from you guys. As well, it's just it's he knew, it. he knew what he was doing. Yeah. It's just it's such a beautiful. He knew what he was doing. Now, oh, I mean, I like I I'm you know I, I've always loved his bottles. So when I had that opportunity in New York, I jumped all over that in a in a heartbeat. <laughs> I didn't that? Yeah. That was a yes. I had to go buy a second piece of luggage because I bought like five bottles there, and I obviously couldn't <laughs> fit them in my suitcase. <laughs> you know, next, uh, you know the thing is a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, mate. Look, there's a lot of people don't realize how important the Italians were as building single malt whiskey. You know, Samaroli, Samaroli that is, and a man called Armando Giovanetti, when, when they started to come to Scotland in the 1960s, you know, they were knocking on closed doors. We didn't have visitor centers at the facility. You know, these guys were literally knocking on the door and asking asking the people that were working at the facility to show them around and, and could they buy some stuff. And I think probably the first facility really to to see that as a slight opportunity with Glenn Grant back in the early 60s. And, and I remember the story true. about Giovanetti. Honestly, Giovanetti literally filled his car boot up with bottles and drove them back to Italy and started selling them in fill houses. And, you know, many years later, he then gets his hands on the Macallan, starts distributing the Macallan in, in Italy. And these were five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, things like that. And, and Italy, for, for many years, was the number one single malt whiskey market in the world you know they were the first ones really to see the single malt whiskies that we see today for what they aren't and they deserve a huge amount of credit you know for building single malt whiskey because it was it was probably 30 years after then that scotland really see seeing what single malt could offer i you know what i didn't realize how imperative the italians were to scotch whiskey but on the trip when i was there now when I was at Ben Romac, the gentleman that was on the tour with me was a was from Italy, owns a restaurant, part of this huge like Italian whiskey community. And he was mm-hmm. just telling me and showing me some of these collectors' collections. I mean, like, dude, like yeah. walls and walls and walls full of vintage Scotch whiskey. Walls of it. Like not like rooms, yeah. just like going on and on and on and on. I'm like, holy shit. And they opened them. He's like, dude, you could go in and get like a coffee. And look up and like, oh, wait, that's like a McAllen 15 from the 1970s. Oh, yeah, I'll get a board yeah. of that. They're just so well, much. Wait, wait. If you wanted to become, if you wanted to become, and you, you're exactly the right guy for the job, if you wanted to become a, a whiskey pirate, sail the seven seas and, 
and hide this treasure, right? You, you, if you were going to do that, I would really recommend you go to Italy and go and go and find some of these little hotel bars in the middle of nowhere because they will have some treasure on those back bars. They will have some unbelievable releases that, you know, many of us would love to try because they're just a great snapshot into what was going on in, in this era of the 60s and the 70s. Because Italy, like, look, this is it. They, they deserve so much credit. Um, and maybe they don't get enough credit, uh, but they deserve so much credit in the, in the story of single vaults. And I'm sure, you know, it's been recognised a few times by a few writers and things like that. But a full story on that would be fantastic, especially now that, um, well, Mr. Samaroli sadly passed away. But, yeah. you know, guys like uh, Gio Panetti, I think he's still going. Um, you know, the, these guys were massively influential, hugely. And there was a few guys in Scotland as well. Uh, Hugh Metcalf is one. He was at Glen Grant in those early days. And he then went to McAllen in 1978 when Seagram bought Glen Grant. He left and Glen Grant went over to the McAllen. And then what, what we see at the McAllen from 1978 is McAllen becoming, you know, the brand that we see today. You know, he, he, he was one of the big reasons why it went the direction it did. So, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of people here, but there's a lot of people over in places like Italy that believed in single mall. And, and I think that's the key. And I think that's what's so cool behind all these stories, a lot of these bottlings that you find out there, especially the Samarolis and, and the bottles that were imported by Mr. Giovanetti and all those, all those years ago. It's something special. All right, we're crushing time over here. I got to get to, I got to get to one fun question or maybe two here. You do, you right. had to do, I mean, you, you have an amazing job. You have an amazing life. Is there a moment or two where you're like, holy fuck, I can't believe I'm doing this. Or is because of who you work for and you drive the Aston Martin, it's just business as usual. <laughs> that's the, that's, yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> it's yeah. another day at the office when you, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. all right, yeah, sure, you got the 1963, yeah, we should open that. What are we doing? What are we eating with that? I mean, are there, are there moments when you look in your career and go like, holy shit? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, there, there, to be honest, there's probably a, a couple of occasions where I've, I've really sat and just gone, I, I, you know, in your younger years, you're too young to, to really enjoy the moment so much. You, you're, you're so quick to sort of move on to the next thing. Or maybe you don't even recognize the significance of it and things like that. I went to the Impact event, um, which, which still is one of one as a charity, uh, where they auction off, you know, very, very special bottles of whiskey. In October last year, after the first auction, um, I uh, thought it was May this year, actually. It was May this year they did the, the impact event, which shows you where the money went and, and what they did with it. And, and I have to say, there was a young man that got up on the stage and told us his story and told us how the Stillers 101 had helped him. He just found it really powerful, and I felt very fortunate. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy from a fairly normal background, Gavin. I don't come from a, a wealthy family or anything like that, and... You know, sometimes you know what it's like when you're young and stuff's not brilliant, yeah. right? And and seeing someone like that, you know, being helped by this industry just like made me feel really good. And actually, uh, I, I just I just thought it was a really a really brilliant moment, one that I really enjoyed, and something that really stood out probably in the last four or five years as a real highlight. And then and then on top of that, uh, when we were at the auction, the day the day you left the day before, uh, sadly, or that morning, um, but the auction itself was pretty incredible. And watching that Bowmore uh, sell for oh, 565k um, in the room, uh, listening to the online bidders, uh, watching some of the guys in the room bidding on that, and, and, and actually just seeing that come off um, was pretty special. Not not just because it was the Bowmore bottle, 
but also because of the collective uh, get together that that has yeah. to happen. Because it's not often as an industry we all get in the same room. We're all fighting for the same cause. We're all uh, hoping that everybody achieves you know as best they possibly can. And, and we all know each other. As you you saw that right. Yeah. We, we're all buddies in one way or another. We're all connected in one way or another. And and that was quite cool as well. So. Let's go for those two, I would say. Certainly in the last five years, that it's been growing. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely coming back next year. That was a mind-blowing experience. And, and it was very humbling, I think, to learn more about the charity. Obviously, I was fortunate yeah. to be at the lunch the day before and, like, really listen. And, you know, it, it motivated me as a guy with, you know, three kids who, who do have everything. Because I bust my ass yeah. and they have everything. And realizing when you show up to sports games... They're the fucking 1%, which I hate to say, and I don't want them to be that, but they are because I can get yeah. them a new bat and a new pair of shoes. And I came back super yeah. motivated. Like, I want to start something to help those kids that just don't have that. Yeah. Yes. Totally. And I, and I, like, and I, like, you know, and it's not hard to do. It's really not. I mean, if I just look at all the sports it, equipment that we have, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. The amount of sports equipment yeah. that my kids have that it's like, you know, a season and done two seasons and done like i wanted to keep paying it forward and when i sat there at the at the 101 and listened to you know the whole charitable board and how they just it's not like just like hey we give you money it's like no we give you guidance we give you structure we you know we yeah. we just enable you to have a better life yeah yeah Everybody that, that opportunity everybody should have that, that opportunity doesn't have to be a million, you know, whatever we made is, is going to that good cause. And uh, thankfully, you know, through through whiskey, through great rare expressions and beautiful pieces, you know, we're able to raise an awful lot. And um, value the fact that we're doing something, especially the collective, uh, I just think is massive. And yeah, I find it, I, I do find it particularly inspiring. And I, and I think it's great that whiskey can do something good. You know, we do get a lot of heat um, as an alcohol business sometimes, you know, because people, you know, can abuse it and things like that. So I think it's, uh, I think it's great if they're able to do it, you know, positive for the society, which is great. No, I love that. Well, I appreciate you coming on, my brother. I really do. That was, this was super fun. I love learning. I love hanging out with you. I can't wait to get back there. Do you want to, you want to give up yeah, yeah, your social media? You want to, you want to give your Instagram nah, out? If hold you on, man. You know, nah, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, don't, when are you, when are you back? When are you coming back? Oh, we, 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 uh, I, I think I'm, the goal is two trips next year. One, obviously in October for one, for one of one again. And then like, I'm thinking like sometime when I can guarantee the weather's just a little, I mean, I had beautiful weather. I was jo like, I was like, really, you saw my trip. I didn't have any bad weather, yeah. but like what, you know, like I'm thinking like a May, June trip as well. You know, I, I really oh, yeah. want to, you know, talk about, I mean, I want to talk amongst us boys and kind of see like, when's there something fun? Because what I loved about this last trip is, of course, everything amazing I got to do. But like that, that distill is one of one, like just having us all together, like all together in one area. Yeah. Boom, done. Yeah. Like was just pretty fucking cool. Yeah. No, I agree, man. I agree. Well, look, come in May. I would recommend May over June. Um, yeah. May, May is a great month. We've obviously, we've obviously got the Campbelltown Festival and Fedil in May. Um so I would recommend like that second two weeks of May is, is a good time. Um, and uh, yeah, mate, look, and anyone that's out there that's, that's looking to enjoy, you know, great more, uh, you know where to find me, uh, Gavin, at Dav Haldane on Instagram, or you can just follow Bulmore, um on, on Instagram as well. Give us a follow, 
see see what's going on, see what new bottlings we have coming down the line, uh, because we're going to have a busy busy year ahead. Um, and I'll see you, I'll see you in May, and uh, hopefully it may you come because I'll make time and we'll get on it, and it'll be great. Well, we'll plan that accordingly. I want to thank everyone for listening. I highly recommend you get a couple of bottles of Beaumont to drink and for your collection. It's special whiskey. It just is. You know, like I don't, you know, like I've been super fortunate to drink some amazing whiskey. And I can't say every single whiskey is like this. I mean, it's just, it's special. It's a beautiful time capsule. It's beautiful modern as well. Like the new ones, like I just highly suggest getting a couple of bottles. Daz, love you, brother. Kim, thank you for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure you follow Daz. Make sure you give a rating when you listen. And I appreciate everybody. Well, till next time, I'm out. Thank you, everybody.